Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff, and happy April Fool's Day, everyone. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And this episode should publish on April 1st, 2019. Unless my producer, Tari, has played an April Fool's joke on me while I'm on vacation. And I thought, well, I could do another follow-up episode on the various tech pranks that have been pulled since the last time I did a prank roundup, which I think was in 2015. But then I decided to focus on something else, a really amazing example of engineering. So there was a fellow who was named John Helens Quick who published a piece at least as early as 1944. It was in a December edition of the British Institution of Electrical Engineers Students Quarterly Journal. Now, I say at least as early as 1944 because there's some people who say that it may have been published even earlier in some other journal by 1942, but it's super hard to track down. The earliest I found was this 1944 journal. The article is a masterpiece. It describes a transformative technology called the turboencabulator. Now, normally, I wouldn't read out an entire piece. But in order to understand how important this is, I figure I would make an exception. And so here is Mr. Quick's description of the turboencabulator. For a number of years now, work has been proceeding in order to bring perfection to the crudely conceived idea of a transmission that would not only supply inverse reactive current for use in unilateral phase detractors, but would also be capable of automatically synchronizing cardinal grammeters. Such an instrument is the turboencabulator. Now, basically, the only new principle involved is that instead of power being generated by the relative motion of conductors and fluxes, it is produced by the modial interaction of magneto-reluctance and capacitive directance. The original machine had a base plate of prefabulated amulite surmounted by a malleable logarithmic casing in such a way that the two spurving bearings were in a direct line with the pentametric fan. The latter consisted simply of six hydrocoptic marzolvances, so fitted to the ambifacient lunar wane shaft that side fumbling was effectively prevented. The main winding was of the normal Lotus O delta type, placed in panendermic semi-boloid slots in the stator, every seventh conductor being connected by a non-reversible trimmy pipe to the differential girdle spring on the up end of the grammeters. 41 manestically spaced grouting brushes were arranged to feed into the rotor slipstream a mixture of high S-value phenylhydrobenzamine and 5% ruminative tetraleohexamine. Both these liquids have specific paracaustics given by P equals 2 times 5 Cn to the 6 times 7th where N is the diathetical evolute of retrograde temperature phase disposition, and C is Cull Mondelez annular grillage coefficient. Initially, N was measured with the aid of a metapolar refractive pilfometer, but up to the present date, nothing has been found to equal the transcendental hopper datascope. Electrical engineers will appreciate the difficulty of noobing together the regurgitative Purwell and a supremative Wennell sprocket, Indeed, this proved to be a stumbling block to further development until, in 1942, it was found that the use of anhydrous nangling pins enabled a cryptonastic bowling shim to be tankered. 
The early attempts to construct a sufficiently robust spiral decommutator failed largely because of a lack of appreciation of the large quasi-piestic stresses and gremlin studs. The latter were specially designed to hold the Rothit bars to the spam shaft. When, however, it was discovered that the winding could be prevented by a simple addition to the living sockets, almost perfect running was secured. The operating point is maintained as near as possible to the HF rem peak by constantly formaging the bitumogenous spandrels. This is a distinct advance on the standard nivel sheave in the no-dramcock oil is required after the phase detractors have been remissed. Undoubtedly, the turbo encabulator has now reached a very high level of technical development. It has been successfully used for operating Nofer trunnions. In addition, wherever a barricent score motion is required, it may be employed in conjunction with a drawn reciprocating dingle arm to reduce sinusoidal deplenation. Now, my guess is you just listened to me read off that let's say, remarkable description. And you're left with the obvious response of, well, of course, that's, that's blatantly obvious. That's old news. Or perhaps you're having what was the intended response. You're confused as heck. Quick's piece was a tongue-in-cheek example of satire, highlighting how engineers would sometimes rely very heavily on jargon that, you know, didn't seem to really mean anything or purposefully obfuscated the functionality of a system or maybe even cover up the engineer's own ignorance of how a system actually worked. Jargon does have some purposes, of course. Sometimes you need to create words to describe something that didn't exist before. If you make a new device that fulfills a specific purpose, you need to have a name for it. You might need a name for the thing that the device actually does. Maybe whatever the device is doing is a brand new thing. So you got to have some word to describe it. Maybe what it does is a very specific instance of a more broad concept. So it's not doing a brand new thing. It's just doing a thing in a new way. So you create words to help build in precision. You don't just mean a dingle-dangle. You might mean a, a one-eighth hexagonal matrix dingle-dangle. So you call this particular component a, a frunion or whatever. With precision, you can more quickly communicate your exact needs or intentions to others within that field. But with that growing precision comes a knowledge gap between the people in your field and everybody else. Now, in other cases, people rely on jargon not to convey specific meaning, but rather to come across as being more sophisticated or intelligent or to make something more complicated than it really is. So I'm going to give you guys uh, some examples from my own life. In my life, before I ever was a podcaster, before I was a writer for HowStuffWorks.com, I worked for a couple of different management consulting firms. Now, these were companies that were geared toward helping other companies assess manager styles or figure out what a corporate culture was within a certain business to improve workplace efficiencies, that kind of thing. I was essentially working for the Bobs from Office Space, I guess you could say. So if you're familiar with that film and the two consultants who come in and essentially start slashing jobs left and right... I was kind of their employee in a roundabout way, although we didn't typically advocate for slashing huge numbers off of a, a corporate employee list. Occasionally, yes, 
but not frequently. So my work was focused on helping consultants produce proposals and reports. Largely, I was there to review, to proofread, to format, and occasionally to tweak stuff. Now, I majored in English Lit when I was in college. I have a fairly extensive vocabulary, but frequently I would find myself working on documents that were so full of jargon that I would have to bring the documents over to a consultant and say, what exactly do you mean when you say this? You know, I would highlight a passage and say, what does this actually mean? Because I couldn't really edit or produce documents if I didn't understand the meaning, because it might mean I could let something go out of the office that was incorrect. And it was incorrect because I didn't understand what was actually being meant and whether or not the consultant was accurate in their language. So I would have to talk with these consultants on a very frank level and say, no, 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 I understand what each individual word means in this sentence. But can you tell me what the overall meaning is? What are you actually getting at when you say this? And if they could tell me in plain English, then I would ask them, so why don't you say it that way in this report? Why are you using language that is so complicated or non-intuitive that what you actually mean is hidden by that language. What good does that do you? My fear was that the consultants were writing these reports in a way to kind of hide the meaning because it gave them some wiggle room in the interpretations. And I thought that was maybe a little disingenuous. Like, if you could word a report in such a way that two different people could come away with two totally different interpretations— and both interpretations are seemingly valid because you were purposefully vague or uh, using very weird jargon in your descriptions, then you haven't really done your job. You haven't actually helped them in any way because no one has any consensus on what to do next. So I found it very frustrating working in that world. Well, the same thing can happen with engineers or really any profession that has its own jargon, from medicine to law to science to content creation on the internet. I've been to plenty of meetings where there's been a lot of discussion about things on the internet where I felt it was being unnecessarily complicated, where people were talking about buckets and verticals, and they're talking about uh, all sorts of things and deliverables and asking to dialogue with someone. And I kept thinking, why are we using this language? There are other words we can use that everyone understands that will convey exactly the meaning you, you want. And yet we're progressively going to this, this weird quasi-language <laughs> that, that has a lot of ambiguity in it and therefore makes it harder to understand the meaning. Anyway, that was really what this piece was all about. There has to be a balance between precision that you get with the specific language that you are relying upon and clarity, what you mean by that language. So this piece by student John H. Quick was really meant to raise the reliance uh, of jargon to ridiculous extremes, to say, if we really crank up the jargon speak in a piece, you realize how silly it can get. And the joke may well have died a quiet death on its own, or maybe only been something that engineers would joke about, just an inside joke among them, 
if it hadn't been for Time magazine. The Arthur D. Little Industrial Bulletin in the United States would take this piece and publish it in 1946, but that didn't exactly hit mainstream readership. It did, however, get some attention by people who would review technical documents. And in April of that year, Time magazine ran the piece with the title For Nofer Trunnions. It was produced without an overt nod that the whole thing was a wind-up. And the people at Time magazine knew it was a joke, but they were presenting it as if it were a realistic document. Some readers were legitimately flabbergasted. They thought it was meant as an actual example of engineering, but other people actually picked up on the joke and ran with it. Stanton Tompkins, for example, wrote to Time magazine and included the comment, May I add that if the bearings are lubricated with warm smorch, they will not grunch. Uh, Others added equally nonsensical comments to push the joke further. One that's frequently mentioned is from a guy named Ernest N. Kerman. He wrote in and said, After being advised and cerebrally malleated by 1.5 nofer trunnions from a matitudinative 0451 GMT to an epinocturnal proximate 1155 EST, I felt the need of Spirian animating, philipperative, and therefore submersonized my hypersensinate endoderm in a 5% fissionate bicarbolacinating Kepsipola. Little slightly veiled Pepsi Cola reference there. Still, the joke could have faded away from memory after the Time magazine piece were it not for the determination of a few jokesters in the engineering world to give it a shot in the arm every few decades, like the instrument department at General Electric. They wrote up an entire data sheet on the fictional turbo-encabulator. More on that in just a moment, but first, let's take a quick break. On December 31st, 1962, the instrument department at GE released a fact sheet on the turbo encabulator. By the way, I've seen turbo encabulator presented as both a single word and as two words as turbo encabulator. So dealer's choice, I guess. Both appear throughout engineering joke literature. The fact sheet, however, really helps clear things up. For example, the function of the turbo encabulator is made clear by this fact sheet. It's, quote, to measure inverse reactive current in unilateral phase detractors with a display of percent realization, end quote. So, finally, we know what's going on, right? Much of the fact sheet is drawn directly from Quick's description of the turbo-encabulator from back in 1944. Other parts gleefully build upon the nonsense. For example, there is a section on the fact sheet about the application of the device that reads, quote, Caution! Because of the replenerative flow characteristics of positive ions in unilateral phase detractors, the use of quasi-static regeneration oscillator is recommended if turbo-encabulator is used in explosive atmospheres, end quote. The fact sheet actually includes an image of the supposed device, the first image that I could actually find on record. This version, if you were to look at it, looks kind of like a cylinder mounted on its side on a small stand. So think of like a, like a water bottle, but you have it on its side. 
Uh, on one end of this cylinder is a fan that sticks out of the end. Uh, there's a length of piping that stretches across the top of the turbo encabulator. So again, like it would be the side of the cylinder, but the top of the device. And there's some other details on this as well, although it's hard to make out because I've only seen scans of the original document, and they tend to be pretty low-quality scans, so it's hard to make out details. The entire write-up followed the format of official GE standards for product documentation. So th the people who made this actually made it so it looked exactly like any standard GE uh, documentation. They, they followed all the rules, and it was inserted into the official GE handbook. Now, I'm sure that those who painstakingly read through the entire handbook were amused or maybe befuddled by the joke. Also, I feel this is a good place to say that it pays to read through employee handbooks because you never know when someone's going to slip in a joke. And as someone who has actually designed employee handbooks in the past, I'd also say it is incredibly satisfying to put jokes into official materials. You know, so long as those jokes aren't going to backfire on you. So I would actually recommend getting official approval before getting wacky with the official handbook. It is good to CYA in those cases. Still, at this point, we're talking about print representations of this ridiculous notion. In 1977, the turbo encabulator made the transition from page to screen. An actor named Bud Haggart, who was well-known for voiceover and industrial film performances, took on the role of an engineer delivering a matter-of-fact explanation of the turbo encabulator. The script was nearly word-for-word -word Quick's original piece in 1944. It was edited a bit, but had essentially the same flow, and it was helped with meaningless diagrams and sketches that Haggart would point to throughout his delivery as if he was actually pointing at the physical components of this fictional device. His tone and approach made it sound like he was talking about something that any kid could understand with relative ease. It was brilliant. According to internet lore, Haggard proposed doing the short as an add-on after an official short film for GMC was shot. It was a, a, an, an industrial film about one of their truck lines. So he goes in, he does this commercial shoot for GMC about their truck lines, and he works with the film crew. And then afterwards, he takes the film crew aside. He talks to the director, whose name was uh, Dave Rondut, and he asks them to stay after so that he might shoot a short film that is based off the turbo encabulator piece. Uh, Haggard had actually written the script based on that 1944 article and made it something that he could create a presentation out of. And industrial films were something of a, of a big deal in the 70s and 80s, and they could actually make the rounds within an industry. So this 1977 fake industrial film that Haggard made made the rounds, and some folks over at Chrysler saw it. So in 1988, Chrysler hired Haggard to come over and shoot a new version of his turbo encabulator presentation at Chrysler's facility. And it was purporting to be a new product from the auto company. In this case, he had some actual machinery to gesture toward while delivering his presentation, but none of the things he was pointing to had anything to do with what he was actually saying. 
Cuddle cat, cuddlefish, the second oil age. And his kingdom was full of darkness. I don't dispute the Eros data, but if he's down here, we'd know. Not blood, but darkness. The Earth's black riches. No. I could taste it on my lips. Today, I want to talk to you about the science of transgenesis. Transgenesis.show Whoa, I, I, I'm not sure what, what happened just there. That was, that was odd. Um, I, I, all right, well, getting back into it, uh, talking uh, about the films, both the original a video or film, rather, that Haggard shot and the Chrysler version of the presentation are available online. You can watch both of them. You can find them on YouTube. You can find them on other platforms as well. And there is no way at all that I could deliver the techno babble with the same deadpan skill as Mr. Haggard. It is a masterpiece of deadpan humor. It's also pretty clear that he wasn't using any cue cards or a teleprompter. His eyes hold steady the entire time. They don't have the telltale scanning motions you get when you're watching someone who's reading from cue cards or a teleprompter. If you've ever watched Saturday Night Live, if you've ever even watched videos that I have done, uh, I've done several videos without a teleprompter, and I've done videos with teleprompters. And if you watch my eyes, you can tell which one you're seeing because you can see that I'm actually reading something on the teleprompter one. So I get really sensitive to this kind of thing. I notice it pretty quickly. I think most people do, but it jumps out at me. So I wondered at first how he did it. Like, how did he actually memorize this incredibly dense list of jargon? Well, according to the director, Rondot, the 1977 version was done with an audio prompter. It was a wired earpiece that connected to a reel-to-reel tape recorder. Uh, so Haggard had gone and recorded the entire speech onto the reel-to-reel, and he used the earpiece as a prompter for himself. Now, I can't imagine how difficult that was to do at pace where you're delivering it right after you're hearing it. Because if you've ever tried to speak while hearing your own audio, you know that that can get really difficult. You can find it very disorienting and disconcerting. So maybe he practiced it enough to speak the piece in time with the recorded version, sort of like singing along to the radio when a song is playing. You might find that, oh, I know all the lyrics when I sing along to the radio. But if you ask me to try and sing the lyrics on my own without the song playing, suddenly I start having trouble. Maybe it was something like that. I don't know. The Chrysler video has a follow-up part. And there's another actor who talks about the diagnosis and service of the turbo encabulator. That segment includes even more techno babble and jargon, adding yet more complexity to the overall joke. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole script like I did with the original publication, but I do want to point out a couple of favorite parts of mine. The presenter says... For the purposes of obscurity, we have removed the casing to expose the heart of the turbo encabulator, the magneto-reluctance modial interactor. Since little or nothing is known about the principles involved in magneto-reluctance, diagnosing faults can be a problem. That, to me, is absolutely hysterical. The notion that we have built an important piece of technology without an understanding of the underlying science that makes it work is already pretty amusing. So, yeah, if you don't understand how something works, how would you know when something is wrong? 
There's also a terrible pun in that segment, in which the presenter says a diagnostic tool will display any faults in code, adding, quote, it's a simple head code. Anyone can catch it, end quote. That in turn might be a bit of a joke theft, because I actually recall that the absurdist radio comedy group Firesign Theater had a similar joke about a simple schoolboy code that anyone could catch. In general, the Chrysler video makes it more apparent that the whole thing is done for laughs. It is less of a, uh, it's, it's less done as a serious piece. The original piece, if you didn't know better, if you were completely naive about engineering, you might think, well, this is just, I, I don't understand any of it. I have no idea what this thing does. But if you know what they, he's talking about, or at least know enough to know that it's nonsense, then it's a joke. Well, in this case, the Chrysler version is more obviously a joke. Another video that will pop up if you search for Turbo Encabulator is from Rockwell Automation, produced in 1997, which tells us that it seems like we get a new version every decade or so, because the first one came out in 1977, the next one came out in the late 80s, and then you have 1997 or so for the third one. The company, Rockwell Automation, started at the beginning of the 20th century, a different company name, but what would evolve into Rockwell Automation traces its history back that far. The company creates industrial automation technology for other companies. So it's not exactly the place you would expect to find humor, but Rockwell produced their own video in the spirit of the Turbo Encabulator, this time called the Retro Encabulator. Actor Mike Kraft served as the host of the video. And Kraft had done presentations at industry conferences and events on behalf of companies like Alan Bradley for years. Kraft had discovered the Bud Haggart piece many years earlier and had memorized it. And I didn't realize it at first when I was watching it, but Kraft also was the repair technician who did the follow-up segment in Haggart's Chrysler video. So he actually got to work with Bud Haggart at Chrysler and then was able to do the full presentation over at Rockwell. Also, like Haggart... Kraft used an ear prompter, although at this point, we're talking about a wireless one, not a wired one. Like the Chrysler video, the Rockwell one makes use of actual devices to illustrate the point. With Chrysler, the device would be like transmission parts. You know, they were car parts. But with Rockwell, it was actually electrical wall panels that uh, Kraft was opening up and using to illustrate his fictional points. The video also featured shout-outs to Rockwell customers like Dodge, Alan Bradley, and Alliance Electric, and claiming that the encabulator was really a joint effort between these different companies. But the description of the device was, again, largely the same as the original 1944 write-up. Oh, and you should check out retroencabulator.com because you'll be directed to Mike Kraft's acting website. The joke survives to this day, with SciShow's Hank Green delivering a performance just a few years ago, I think 2013. It was an April Fool's Day joke, and he, again, delivers it exactly the way you would expect Hank Green to do it perfectly. And he does a masterful job as well. Those of you who remember my series Forward Thinking, you might be amused to know that our series director, Dan Bush, wanted me to do a version of the Turbo Encabulator as an April Fool's joke for the show, to do a full Forward Thinking episode about the Turbo Encabulator. We never could get clear approval to move forward on that, so it never happened. I guess I should be thankful, because I'm absolutely certain shooting a video version of that would have required countless takes to get it right. In fact, I imagine I would still be in the studio today if that were the case. 
So that's the story about the turbo encabulator. But I've got more to say about jargon and techno babble in just a moment. But let's take another quick break. All right, so let's talk a bit about techno babble, or sometimes known as techno speak, which you could call a trope. A trope means a couple different things. I guess I should really define what I mean by it since I'm talking all about being precise and clear. So in this case, a trope, as I'm, I'm using it, refers to some sort of common literary or rhetorical device, something that is used frequently enough to be part of a common language or even a cliché. Uh, It doesn't even have to be language. It can be a specific sort of event. So a horror movie trope, a very common horror movie trope, might be something like, let's split up. You see that in horror movies all the time. You already know what that means. When when characters say, let's split up, you know that means that whatever the the antagonist is in the horror movie, whether it's a slasher or a ghost or goblins or whatever it might be, they're going to get somebody because they split up and they're more vulnerable. So splitting up is always a great idea in the context of a horror movie. And and you can subvert tropes too. You don't have to just fulfill tropes. You could do a horror movie where you say, let's split up, everyone splits up, and then everyone is fine until they get back together again. Then you have subverted the trope. But the you're, you're depending on the audience being aware that there is a trope, that you have subverted their expectations, but the reason they have the expectations is because the trope existed in the first place. So, techno-speak is one of those devices used by writers to create what sounds like a sophisticated explanation of a technology, but tends to be total nonsense, or at the very least is overly complicated and verbose. So I thought I would include some of my favorite examples and include a little context as well. And I don't want to cast too much shade here. It is really challenging to write science fiction in a believable way because you're typically describing things that don't exist in our real world. Maybe they exist in some form, but you're talking about a more advanced version. Or maybe you're talking about a brand new technology that has no basis in reality as as it stands right now. And you have to find words to describe it, and you don't want it to sound like cavemen trying to describe television, you want it to sound like it exists within the time and place that you have set your story. So you have to have that balance. How do you create words and phrases that have meaning within your world and aren't just seen as being complete nonsense to everybody else? Uh, I don't have the answer to that question, by the way. This is a hard thing to do. So there's some stiff competition around various franchises for the most frequent use of techno-speak. Now, I personally would give the trophy over to the Star Trek franchise. Not the original series so much, because, believe it or not, Star Trek, the original series, wasn't quite so flagrant about throwing around jargon. You got some, but not tons of it. It wasn't like it was really, you know, ingrained in every single episode. The show did feature fictional technologies like warp drives, phasers, you know, transporters, those sort of things. But you didn't get a lot of techno babble about those things. You might just get fire the phasers. Then Star Trek The Next Generation debuted. And initially, it was similar to the original series. And it was fairly light on techno speak. 
But then, after the series creator Gene Roddenberry passed away, and after the Star Trek technical manual came out, the technical manual attempted to give valid explanations for how all the technology in Star Trek The Next Generation actually worked, which meant it was largely a, a, a work of speculative fiction in of itself. Once those two things happened, writers began to insert more and more techno babble into the show. And like I said, it's a pretty tough gig. You, they had to describe technology that would exist centuries from today. It's hard enough to predict what's going to happen in five years. Anyone who's listened to my technology uh, p- prediction episodes know that it's hard enough to describe what's going to happen in the next year, let alone 300 years from now. And so there was some imaginative use of terminology that was necessary, but the writers kind of went a little nutty with it in the later seasons of The Next Generation and then the following Star Trek series. I haven't gone through every episode of The Next Generation to keep a tally, but the example that always leaps to my mind with Star Trek The Next Generation is the ubiquitous reverse the polarity. The phrase was used as sort of a get-out-of-crisis-free card on episodes where the usual approach, whatever that might be, wasn't working. So, for example, if the Enterprise encountered an enemy Borg vessel that was attacking, the bridge crew might try to reverse the polarity on the ship's shields to help repel the attack. Now, to be fair, the Star Trek writers didn't invent the idea of reversing the polarity. It had already had a distinguished run on the venerable UK series Doctor Who. Fans of classic Doctor Who, I'm talking about Doctor Who before the reboot with Eccleston and Tennant and all the rest, you might remember John Pertwee, who played the third Doctor in the series. Reverse the polarity, and later on, reverse the polarity of the neutron flow, became a common phrase in Doctor Who episodes, finding its way across multiple Doctors as the series continued, including Doctors after the reboot. Peter Capaldi's Doctor even subverted this trope in an episode in which he said, quote, reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. I bet that means something. It sounds great. End quote. One of the criticisms I've seen about Star Trek in general was that the reliance on meaningless techno-speak acted as sort of a deus ex machina, literally in this sense, to get the crew out of danger without actually coming up with an approach that has any relevant meaning to the audience. Essentially, it was saying, the thing you're doing isn't working. Do the thing you're doing, but do it differently. I did the thing differently. It worked. We got away. That's not very satisfying once you strip away the technobabble. The technobabble helped kind of hide the weakness of that resolution. Other examples included routing an inverse tachyon pulse through the main deflector dish. That makes no sense. Uh, Tachyon's a hypothetical particle that could move faster than the speed of light. I have no idea what an inverse tachyon would be. But that's one of the big examples that I tend to think about Star Trek. However, science fiction is not the only source of technobabble. There are others. Thrillers and procedurals also revel in technobabble from time to time. Characters like Chloe O'Brien in 24 or Abby in NCIS frequently speak in technobabble only to have someone else in the scene ask them to repeat what they said, quote-unquote, in English. Now, frequently, the English translation for the technospeak doesn't actually match up with whatever the technospeak was, which means the tech speak was totally superfluous. 
though you could argue the writers were including it, to try and create some sort of credibility for the character as an expert in his or her field, and not actually meant to move the story along. But to me, it's almost like you're treading water. You're having a character say, uh, at least reportedly, say the same thing two different ways, except in reality they're saying nonsense one way and then something that makes sense the other way. Why would they not just use plain English in the first place? Now, I'm pretty sure that Shannon Morse and I, Shannon Morse of Hack 5, covered some atrocious examples of technobabble in our episode about hacking in Hollywood. In fact, I remember that we specifically covered this one, but I want to talk about it again. One of my favorite examples of technobabble and hacking Hollywood style would be from CSI New York. It was from an episode called Taxi, in which a character named Lindsay says, I'll create a GUI, actually, she says GUI, I'll create a GUI interface using Visual Basic, see if I can track an IP address. So that's so wrong. It is hilariously wrong. This clip is available to watch on YouTube if you're so inclined. You can just see that in this brief moment, it lasts less than three seconds, I'll create a GUI interface using Visual Basic, see if I can track an IP address. It is so silly. Let's go through it step by step to kind of see how ridiculous this technobabble is. First of all, Lindsay says she's going to create a GUI interface. That's already repetitive. It's like saying ATM machine or PIN number. GUI is G-U-I, and it stands for Graphical User Interface. So she's going to create a Graphical User Interface interface according to what she says. Also, a GUI is just a way to interact with a device. That's what interface means. It's the way you interface with your technology. It facilitates computer commands. It doesn't do anything special. It just allows you to do whatever you need to do on a device. But it itself is just a facilitator. So Windows is a GUI. Mac OS is a GUI. Uh, Smartphone user interfaces are GUIs. Because your your programs are represented by icons, they're pictures, and you can click or press on the pictures and activate them, and it launches into a program. But that's all it is. That's what the interface is. This is in contrast, by the way, with text-based interfaces in which you would have to type in commands and file names to get stuff done. So you might have to say, run suchandsuch.exe, and that would send a command to your computer to find that exe file and to initiate it. Whereas on a GUI, you just click on whatever the icon is that represents that that particular program. As for Visual Basic, that's the next part of Lindsay's line, Visual Basic was a programming language. I guess you could say it is a programming language, but we'll get to that. So I guess you could argue that that part of her statement made some sense, I suppose, but Visual Basic relies on a GUI. Visual Basic, the reason why it's called Visual is because it's a GUI interface, to be repetitive again, to do programming. So a programmer would use Visual Basic to create code by choosing snippets of code that was written in the basic programming language. Thus the name, Visual Basic. Basic was designed as an educational tool, primarily. And it made the transition to legacy status, Visual Basic did, in 2008. So in other words, this was a pretty limited programming language. It was a good tool for learning the basics of programming, but it wasn't exactly the most sophisticated or versatile programming language out there. 
Also, this CSI New York episode aired in 2008, the same year Visual Basic was sunsetted as a legacy programming language. So now you've got Lindsay saying she's going to make a GUI with an outdated programming language. And by now it should be pretty obvious that an interface, even one so amazing that it was built in Visual Basic, wouldn't be able to track an IP address at all. It's just an interface. It doesn't do anything other than act as a facilitator. Moreover, there's no shortage of ways to track IP addresses. Heck, just looking at a server that's being contacted is enough because the incoming traffic has to have an IP address associated with it because that's how data communication works. Now, you might not have an accurate IP address. Someone might be using proxies but uh, or VPNs and thus hiding their true IP addresses, but that's different. So that one throwaway line in CSI has led to tons of jokes on the internet, including various attempts to build out what would be a GUI in Visual Basic. So there are a lot of uh, visual gags out there. If you just do a search for CSI New York GUI, you're going to see a ton of them. Now, sometimes the techno-speak that a character says actually does mean something or almost means something. So, for example, in the series Arrow, the character Felicity in one episode says... I have to break through the processor's protective firewall to stop Caden's virus. And the fact that the processor is exponentially overclocking and he's disabled the cooling system, and then she's interrupted by Green Arrow, who says he didn't understand any of that. Well, that particular sentence at least has some elements that make sense. All of the things she says are real things, but the exponential overclocking would have to be an exaggeration. Processors have limits they cannot go beyond, even with overclocking. Uh, a processor has clock cycles. It essentially means how many instructions can this processor complete within a given amount of time. And, and processor manufacturers create limits. Like, they, they make a hard limit for the number of processes per second that a, a clock can handle. But you can remove those limits with processors. That's what you call overclocking. You can make processors actually uh, fulfill more instructions per second than they were rated for, at least up to a point. Eventually, you reach whatever the maximum is that that processor can handle, even with overclocking. So exponential is likely not the right word. That would, that would be way too much. I doubt that any uh, microprocessor manufacturer out there builds in enough capacity and then limits it enough for you to have exponential overclocking. Also, you wouldn't really have a firewall around a processor. Firewalls fit between internal and external networks. It's meant to protect the internal network from harmful forces from the outside, so like from the internet. So a firewall would sit on a connection between machines and the internet, but not so far down as the processor level. Still, I would say that this was a decent attempt at making a meaningful statement. It didn't fully hit the target, but it came close, which is not great for a guy who uses arrows as his main means of weaponry. Anyway, there were two reasons I really wanted to talk about the Turbo Encabulator and Technobabble. The first is I think the Turbo Encabulator is a pretty funny joke that pokes fun at the very human trait of trying to make stuff sound important. The second is that it reminds us that this sort of language is used all the time. And not just in entertainment, not just to create things that make people sound smart. We run into it in marketing materials all the time. Real-world marketing materials aimed at selling stuff to us. So it's good to remember 
This sort of stuff is meant to dazzle us while not actually saying anything of substance. It's another example of why we should practice critical thinking whenever we can, because it could help us avoid making a really dumb decision because we were so impressed with what sounded like a sophisticated description that we never looked into it any further. This teaches us to learn what the actual definitions for words are, both the official definitions and the contextual definitions. And we know what they mean and what they do not mean. So words like quantum, which is frankly overused and misused to a criminal level, is a dead giveaway that you need to pay really close attention. Or words like organic or natural. Heck, words like smart when applied to technology or other products. Those are all things that mean you should probably take a closer look. It doesn't necessarily mean that the people who make that thing are out to fool you, but they might be taking some shortcuts when they're describing whatever it is they do. And you, it's, it's good to take that extra step to find out what is actually meant by that language. Being aware of technobabble makes it more challenging for other people to take advantage of you. It does not make you bulletproof, but it might mean you could sidestep a lie or a prank that might otherwise take you in. And I think that's a pretty valuable lesson for an April Fool's Day. Well, that wraps up this episode of Tech Stuff. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, you can get in touch with me. Send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can pop on over to our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You'll find links to our social media presence over there, as well as a link to our online store. Every purchase you make goes to help the show, and we greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 